Hi everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesom. Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? I am really well, David. I, you know, I shouldn't be. There's all sorts of things, you know, crazily wrong on multiple levels, but uh, I, uh, I was up in a plane. Uh, I didn't uh, jump out this morning. We're a little bit early and it was uh, very cold, but I was taking some aerial photographs, so that always makes me feel good. And I'm, I'm just excited. I, I realize, you know, we, we don't need a reason to feel, to feel good. Um, just being uh, smart and alive and wanting to have fun and, and knowing that there is a real world out there, that's enough. That's enough reason to feel mm -hmm. good. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I've been feeling good today too. Also, like you, despite the circumstances, I've um, been working on my novel and I've been on a strict 1500 word a day regimen. Now people in the writing community love to argue back and forth about whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. I am looking for strict discipline. So I heard a story recently about Toni Morrison when she was in, you know, in 1965, she was working at a random house. She was a single mother of two and she woke up every morning at four to write so that she could have peace and quiet, get that out of the way first thing, and then really attack her day. That story resonated with me for reasons that should be completely obvious to anybody who listens to the show. The day that I have with Gus is busy because children require attention, but more than attention, they need to have your psychic field be one of non-resentment, right? You can't be going through your day thinking, God damn it, I just need to write, but I've got to take care of this kid and blah, blah, blah. And I was beginning to feel a little bit of that. So you can't change a baby's habits, but you can change yours as an adult. So I've been waking up at four every morning to get that out of the way. And it's just opened my days up to pursue work for money, to talk to you, to talk to Kelby, to sometimes even talk to friends on the phone for, for no podcast reason, just because. And then in the evenings, I'm allowed to read and relax a bit and get ready for the next day. So that one little change had a lot of good effect on my, on my day. Well, that is, you know, it's so personal and individual about work schedules, routines, rituals, and magic. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, how writing um, programs in this way differ from the work practices in other art forms. Uh, and I remembered a story about uh, from the music biz, you know, going back to the Brill Building uh, days in New York. And I remember when I was, you know, first coming to New York for writing reasons, the Brill Building was a place I wanted to visit. And, uh, you know, because it's so sort of mythic and yet it's so uh, kind of, you know, disappointingly sort of unpretentious and, you know, in the midst of Grand New York. And I remembered a story about Burt Bacharach and Hal David, one of the great, you know, successful pop writing uh, duos, and they're often duos, aren't they, uh, of all time. 
and they, and they were completely different people. Burt Bacharach's really good looking and married to Angie Dickinson and super healthy running on the beach in you know Malibu later. And Hal David was just an inveterate chain smoker. And uh, but they were in one of the you know the uniformly small little cubicle rooms, totally missing any kind of creative aesthetic at all. Uh, just a terrible factory environment where all these great songwriters worked. You know, Carol King and, you know, Neil Diamond's just next door and everybody. Uh, but Hal David did not stop smoking in the small room. So he perched in the window, you know, leaning out into, you know, the Times Square kerfuffle, you know. And it was terrible. They, they complained all the time. Burt Bacharach was you know, constantly coughing and hacking. And so uh, they got a bigger room. And they both said, oh, no, this won't do. And they went back to the small room. And they went back to complaining <laughs> and, and just, you know, that was where the creative energy came from. So it's a very mysterious thing about where, you know, what works. And, and uh, I think, though, the bottom line is keeping your energy up, keeping your personal good vibe, you know, protected and not letting anything, whether it be in the news or social media or the stupidity of the publishing industry or the stupidity of culture generally, don't, don't let that, you know, bring you down because it's not going to go away, you know? Uh, no, no, no. There's nothing to be done about that. The only thing that you can control is how you respond to it. Exactly. Very sto very stoic idea, but it's stoicism is one of those ideas that embodies the principle of easier said than done. But sometimes the thing that's most difficult, you know, Marcus Aurelius said uh, to himself in his journals, why do you want to get back under the covers? Is that why you were put on this earth to be comfortable under covers? And um, it's difficult to internalize that because com being comfortable under covers is awesome and I love it. But there's a point there. And I think it's worth, for me at least, to really engage and struggle with that a bit and, you know, take inventory of my personal psychic space and how much of it is taken up doing useless bullshit how much of it is taken up relaxing why do i need to relax so much is relaxing helping my good vibe or is it like cigarettes do i just want to keep going back to being comfortable causing me to have bad vibes when i'm not the uh carter the boxer who went to prison what was his first name hurricane carter Hurricane Carter, when he went to prison, he, he gave up his pillow blanket. He stripped everything because he once you lose everything like that, there's nothing they can take away from you. And he knew that he was in for a tough 19-year stint. I don't know how long he thought that he was going to be there for. But that th those ideas of being able to uh, you know, have some discipline, you know, I'm getting a lot of this from a, a book that I've been reading recently by Ryan Holiday called uh, Discipline is Destiny. And the idea of discipline got, got into my head. And so that's, that's where I'm at right now. Like, do, I have, do I have too much fun? 
just enough fun. It's not worth becoming neurotic about, but it is worth taking inventory, I think. Well, inventory is a great idea. I mean, we talk about that. I, I certainly make a point of that in, in my, my textbook, and we're working with that idea in the Psychic Defense Manual. I think it's worth remind the extension of that, uh, which I really derive a great deal of, of inspiration from, is the Wunderkammer, you know, the cabinet of curiosity and wonder that we can hold in our head. I mean, I... I don't have as much money as I like, and there's a lot of stuff that I, a lot of cool things I want, but my mind is filled with things that, images and totems and magic sigils that just bring me such joy when I think of them. I mean, just one of them as an example, because Florida has been in the news with Hurricane Ian. One of mine is an airboat, you know, for traveling around like the Everglades in. I challenge anyone to have a picture of that in their mind and not feel better, you know? It's just such a cool, very utilitarian, but fundamentally exotic, too. And you think, oh, wow, I've got that in my mind. What, what can harm me, you know? No one's going to bring me down my good vibe. They don't have an airboat, you know? Yeah, they don't have an airboat. That's great. So, at the top of the show, Chris, what is the band that you have invented? Okay, this yeah, we got to get to our things. I've been uh, for listeners. I have given David his five words to choose too. So I'm going to go for something that is very uh, Lost Explorers directed. The band name is Dwarf Planet. Dwarf Planet. I uh, I got into a little bit of a Pluto gig earlier. And I was thinking about the idea of dwarf planet. That's also, uh, incidentally, one of the few examples of a phrase that can still uh, carry the freight of the word dwarf in our woke, politically correct landscape uh, today. So I think that's interesting. And they have their own genre, gong gong. That's one word, G-O-N-G, G-O-N-G, gong-gong music. For people who don't know, that is one of uh, the dwarf planets that's on the outskirts of our solar system that doesn't even quite make the Pluto level. But I think that's a great name for kind of an indie band that's just like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're still... We're not even in a garage. We're down in the basement, but that's where we're always going to be. It's just going to be a cooler basement. Um, and their gig is, Gong Gong Music is based on uh, trying to have some playful, creative uh, engagement with strokes, neurological problems, and behavioral uh, issues like autism and Tourette's that all of these mm-hmm. things have to be mm-hmm. brought back into the fold of, of genuine humanism so that we can laugh about them, play with them, and maybe even build uh, some creative stuff for them. So they have, uh, their, their, lo- their slogan, their uh, catch cry is, and it ties in with what you were saying earlier, intermittence as discipline. Think about that. Isn't that mm. isn't that lovely? Mm-hmm. Everyone's all about consistency. We've got to have consistency. Well, what about intermittence mm-hmm. as discipline? 
as discipline. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, they're... Te- temperance, intermittence, temperance, yeah. thing, things of that nature. And yeah. it also has the faith to reappear, you know? You, you, mm-hmm. It's all right mm-hmm. if you disappear because you're you're going to re you're going to fade back in too. You know we forget about that. Mm-hmm. We're always worried about not mm-hmm. fade away. Well, what about fading mm-hmm. back in? Get good at that, and then you're not so afraid of fading away. You know. Um, yes, yes, yes. But their mm-hmm. first single, which employs uh, some uh, disability technology, uh, including an anti-stuttering device. That's fascinating stuff, by the way, to check out. Uh, there's some really interesting um, tech that is, is devoted to this. And I, I would like to see more because, you know, certainly technology should benefit people uh, who are, you know, struggling with some, some issues. But the first single is possibly maybe, but maybe not for sure, you know. And it, <laughs> they are... Uh, rogue comedians with techno instruments trying to navigate the uh, politically correct world of the marginalized and particularly people with disabilities and to really re-engage that and uh, I mean geez think about the history of, of, of great art and science the people with disability I mean it's you know it's a pantheon of them it almost goes you know one and the other so that's my band name. And I have a very simple aphorism for this, uh, this episode. All story plots began as algorithms for myths. Mm. And I, th- mm-hmm. I, I think the kicker there is to try to rehabilitate the word algorithm, which is something many of us may be quite sick of and a little bit afraid of or resentful of uh, because we feel like our whole life has been algorithmized, and it has. Um, But if we take a step back and look at where, because that word has a much longer history and a more magical history than what we think of today, uh, and it's maybe the master sort of approach, you know, to think that, that well, instead of resenting algorithms, maybe we should just think, well, what a cool, wonderful idea, and think how flexible it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm on this wavelength about things in general. I won't get too off topic, uh, but I, when I do look at social media and see the discourse, I, I'm suddenly I'm dividing things into positive and negative ideas, elements of discourse, little nodes of discourse. And what I mean by that, I'm no longer looking for whether something is right or wrong. I'm looking at whether it has a negative effect, taking something away, or a positive effect, adding to something. So, for example, somebody might say, I'm tired of all these Marvel movies. That's a negative node because they are implying that if they had it their way, those movies would never exist or wouldn't exist anymore anyway. And a positive to that would be, you know, Marvel movies serve their market. People like them. Uh, Now, I'm going to go over here and write my book about you know, a talking monitor lizard. 
that's more positive. And you, once you start applying that metric to what you see online, it really, I don't know why it's helpful, but it's been, it's been helping me basically because I'm not, I'm not engaging in the substance of discourse anymore. It's just like, is this going to build or is this going to tear down? Well, okay, here's, this is beautiful. This is just so lovely. This shows how simple ideas and simple designs have such great utility if they are really, really harmonic. Benjamin Franklin really laid down the pros and cons framework so beautifully. Uh, a lot of people don't know that they, you know, it, it's an old idea. He didn't, you know, take credit for, it, but he spelled it out so beautifully. Okay, so that's kind of mm -hmm. how we, you know, how you were dividing things, and I think that's exactly, you know, we all use that system. It's kind of nice to, you know, know a little bit more about where it came from. But here is something really, really wonderful that not many people know. Franz Kafka had some very, very weird ideas generally. And he had a fascination for America. And in an earlier episode, you were talking about how interesting it is to see the Japanese perceptions of America. What a weird you know, mirror window that is. Well, it's very weird to look at Kafka's uh, you know, he had a real romance about Native Americans. He called them Red Indians at the time. Uh, he was into the Wild West. I once tried to write a graphic novel called Franz Kafka, Wild West Detective. But he was fascinated by Benjamin Franklin, really intellectually and heroically, folklorically fascinated by... Benjamin Franklin and in the recent there's been some more discovery of, of his lost work I wish we had more uh, but it's encouraging that some new stuff has come out and he actually says in his beautiful Prague you know very precise and and stilted in a weird way uh, germs being a lawyer you know, an insurance company lawyer, he asks the question, what would Benjamin Franklin do in a particular situation? Isn't that fantastic? You know, we have all this, what would you, what would the Buddha do? What would, you know, and, and Kafka's question is, what would Benjamin Franklin do? He actually asked that, not, you know, the, the, literally those words, but in his mm. just wonderful, strange you know. Yeah, Czech German precision, but that is great. Probably drink a lot of wine and have sex with a prostitute. Well, she's, you know, you wonder how he processed the whole Hellfire Club sort of stories, but you know, I mean, I don't know. We 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 have not seen the like of Ben Franklin in in a while, and we need him back in America, particularly. Um, mm -hmm. But are you ready for your imaginative challenge? born ready okay it's got a kind of americana feel for sure um all right, all right. because you you're getting a lot of exposure to uh, a younger mind and young gus i'm going to put you back in the classroom in a teacherly capacity a little bit older sixth graders but they're pretty squirrely still you know that's not you know 
let's not give them too much credit. They're, they're pretty wiggly and difficult. Sixth graders are still kids. But you're in Oklahoma today, so you can draw on your local neighborhood knowledge, your mother's teaching experience. But you've been charged with putting forward the story of evolution in Darwinian terms as a stage play with your sixth grade cast. <laughs> and for reasons that aren't really worth questioning here, the, there's a lot of good pedagogy behind this that, that plays for that age group usually involve a narrator and frequently need a narrator. But in any case, you have to have a narrator. That's part of the prompt. How do you make your presentation diverse and inclusive? And who's going to be that neighbor, that narrator? You know, it, think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole Darwinian understory is to remove the idea of a narrator entirely. That was his real goal. Mm -hmm. That was his real goal. Mm -hmm. That wasn't Wallace's goal, but that was Darwin's. When we've talked about that before. So you've got to find a strategy. So we want to hear definitely who or what the narration mechanism is. And some, you always do a great job of giving us some of the highlights, at least, of, of where we're going with this uh, squirrely, you know, humble, multi-purpose room uh, performance for parents who may be a little bit more on the edge of their seat than they would have been, you know, even 10 years ago. Because uh, everybody's worried about what we're teaching our kids and maybe that's, they should mm -hmm. be, you know. So there you go. Do you have any questions? Nope. I got okay. it. Okay. All right. I got it for sure. All right. That's a good one. I like the diversity and inclusion angle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, okay, so what do you want to talk about today? Okay, I, I think we're, we're starting to sketch out uh, some interesting maps. I'll say maps plural because I think that's appropriate. But the Lost Explorer's idea is getting more and more shape and definition to it. And it's so rich that it doesn't need to take shape too quickly. It can kind of mutate and, and, and grow or, you know, organically. Uh, it will evolve in you know, the direction it does. But we started off uh, this rebranding and a, a sort of more focused positioning looking at Atlantis from a couple of different points of view. We devoted two different episodes to it. And I think it's worth carrying on with uh, a kind of composite of uh, either imaginary realms across uh, religion, literature, folklore, mythology, etc., or imagined uh, worlds, as in, say, the moon, you know, um, so I thought we'd start looking at, into the history of, of voyages to the moon before the modern era, and it's become a staple, mm -hmm. obviously, of popular culture. I thought we might look at where that comes from. Some of the, the I've picked out three motivations that I think are driving the body of work, some of which people have heard of, maybe, and some not. Uh, and how that links to some deeper underlying values that the 
sort of the smartest people of, of the eras involved thought, the deeper philosophical issues that, that were in play in culture. And sometimes they did absolutely get down to uh, the, you know, ox manure level, you know, that everybody was involved in. And, I, and that's kind of a point that I think will emerge out of, of Lost Explorers is really rethinking our own era in terms of how past eras dealt with enormous change. I think many of us are getting a little bit tired about always hearing about the degree of change, whether it's technological or sociological that we're dealing with now, and forgetting in both arrogance and ignorance what people of the past had to cope with in terms of major universal view change, you know, not just war and trauma and, and disease and suffering, but really having their entire reality upset that this is, mm -hmm. this has happened to a lot of different people. So that's a long way around introducing the uh, work called A Voyage to the Moon by Cyrano de Bergerac, who people may be familiar with as a character uh, a wonderful, wonderful character, uh, famous for swordsmanship, uh, a very, very pronounced nose, and an aptitude for uh, poetry and writing love letters. Um, so he was worth a kind of story and a celebrity cult around him himself. But he wrote in 1657 uh, a satire fantasy called A Voyage to the Moon, and I don't know, I thought that might be a good place to start. I know people know, you know, Cyrano by name and sort of by general mythic reputation, but maybe not this work, and I thought it might be a good introduction to sort of three lines of, of thinking and intention that I believe connect uh, voyages to the moon and voyages to imaginary worlds, even now even now, with all the pop mm -hmm. cult, you know, onslaught. So how does that sound? Oh, excuse me. That sounds really good. I like this psychoarchaeology angle. <clears throat> and what I would hope to get out of this discussion about Voyage to the Moon by, was it Gerard Depardieu that played him in that movie? In the Cyrano movie? Yes, what and then um, Steve Martin did a version called Roxanne. He updated it. Roxanne. That's right, that's right, that's right. So the psychoarchaeology, when, you, when you're performing archaeology, you'll often uncover, say you're in the Mayan ruins, and you uncover this great kind of uh, stone art depiction of a story. And it tells you what that that people's myths were so that you can get a better handle on perhaps who they were and by extension who we are now and the psychoarchaeology of imaginary trips to the moon i think is really good for locating in time where people's you know what where their maps were at exactly right? well said literally and and symbolically psychologically yes Yep, exactly. So I think that's great. I think that's great. I'm not familiar with Voyage to the Moon. 
uh, but I'm definitely interested in hearing about it. So how about we how about we start with that? Okay, well that's that's a great starting point, and I think you just made such a vital point, uh, so simply and and casually even. Uh, I want to call attention to it because I think it is a principle of the whole lost explorer enterprise that we're exploring from many, many different points of view. But it's something that we all, from a psychic defense point of view, need to really either remember or uh, confront if, if we've never really had this thought in the hands of our mind. The connection between, and you really did this so quickly and, and just gracefully, the connection between f literal the maps of the time that you could share and look at with other people and the individual psychic maps, that there is a one-to-one -one connection. It isn't, it's not... The same metaphorical distance that often applies does not apply there. That's a fundamental mm -hmm. principle. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the magic and mystery of maps. You know, we really, re that, that is a human invention that is just so big time, we, we're, we can't recover from it. And there's no reason to try. So with that in mind... Um, What's going on in, in, in Cyrano's uh, zone? And, and there are, uh, he, he's working in a tradition. I mean, there's, there's obviously a whole folkloric fable, legend, fairy tale tradition. So this is not new even in 1657. Uh, people like Plutarch wrote extensively about the face in the moon. And, uh, geez, I was looking at, through my uh, tactical binoculars the other last full moon at at the and I just saw the man in the moon as if for the first time and I thought my god that's just amazing um but mm -hmm. Cicero Plato should certainly be included in this in, in in elliptical ways uh the Russian writer Lucian uh it was not he was and and Kepler's dream uh would be coming. That's a really important thing to mention in this sort of zone. But he's got really three. Um, well, his first priority, and this is not surprising. This is we, you know, you think about it. Well, you're going to allegorize the moon. Well, what's your intention going to be? Probably some sort of comment on Earth and human society. And then you think, well, it's kind of hard to escape that. That's one of the problems that all imaginative creations face in, in otherness, real otherness, isn't it? You know, it's always <laughs> seems to be some reflection back on on the human on human nature, and and maybe intentionally so. Well, in Cyrano's case, it very much absolutely is, and he defines for future writers and thinkers. Uh, certainly a position on what cultural satire is and there is a political element in his day but it's much much softer than we might find in anything in our moment right now it's much more about deeper human foibles and characteristics um, of which you could say that you know any political 
persuasion uh, would be guilty of, or expressive of at least. Um, but on the moon, on his version of the moon, everything is reversed. Uh, so that's an interesting trope that, or a trope to be, in a sense that we'll certainly, you know, we'll see again and again. Uh, people put their hats on and then sit down to show respect. Uh, I, here's one I love: mm. the worst punishment that can be inflicted, inflicted is to uh, to die a natural death of old age. That says something about you know human nature very broadly, mm. I think. And um, mm -hmm. here's one for well, this is kind of wouldn't be politically correct at all today, but it might be an interesting idea. The mark of a gentleman isn't a sword, you know, the make and quality, or even the length of, of the sword, if you like, but it's an erect metal phallus uh, hung from the belt. So he gets right down to it in a way, you know. It's no, we don't care about right. your credit card right. or your Ferrari, you know. Show us the show us the gear. Show us the goods. Yeah, yeah, the the, the wedding tackle, if you. Yeah, will. I love that. I, I first heard that in uh, in Australia. I think that's hilarious. That's wonderful. That's one of my favorite, you know, uh, euphemisms or slang <laughs> phrases. I think that's terrific. That would be a great band name too. Um, wedding tackle. <laughs> <laughs> but the now okay so satire is certainly one of the first possible intentions of these uh, imaginary voyages as a as a general huge genre of literature one of one of my mm -hmm. favorites I think mm -hmm. uh, well three of my top ten fall into it but it's it's so expansive and. Uh, it embraces so many, you know, other art forms, you know, Hieronymus Bosch and on and on. Dolly. I mean, it's just everything cool is, is about that possibility of, you know, imaginary worlds, you know, which also to me, strangely enough, implies more alertness to this world. Uh, and not everyone thinks that way. Um, but there, there's another sort of uh, aspect to, um, his, his work, and it's very difficult, I think, for us to appreciate this today because he was completely split and very open in his own mind about it, and he was representative of, of many people, intelligent people of his time, who just accepted this uh, dichotomy or binary of being uh, religiously inclined uh, he takes, uh, he, he has a problem with an atheist that he meets on the moon, or his narrative character does, and he, he can't get past that, and, and doesn't even try. And yet at the same time, um, he's writing in an era that uh, very, only very recently before Rome, and that means a great deal. That means the papacy. That means the power of the church and money. Talk about institutional, uh, systemic power. That's that's what Rome means. We don't have anything even like that today. You know, Hollywood or Silicon Valley. That sort of name standing for some giant power structure. But Rome at that time had condemned, condemned. Now just think about that for a moment. That's 
if you and I condemn something, who cares, you know? But if Rome and, you know, papal, papal power condemned, well, that's something different. They condemned uh, the idea of a sun-centered universe officially mm-hmm. as heresy, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we we've really just, you know, people, we have cancel culture today and a lot of nonsense. I'm not saying there aren't a lot of repercussions and nonsense and that we haven't maybe even invented more. But I'm saying it's very difficult for us to really understand what a Rome perspective on heresy would look like, you know? Not good, mm-hmm. not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giordano Bruno, one of our great heroes, was burned alive, uh, as we know, in the field of flowers in Rome, which is a powerful place to visit even today. And there is a statue of him there. So it was serious, serious business. And here we have a mind, a creative, interesting, flamboyant, uh, personality and character and we haven't really had many of those in, in the arts and humanities for quite some time uh, I'm not sure about the science no I can't think of anyone really who's that flamboyant really um, mm-hmm. who's really coping with uh, a pretty major schism of thought and that's where you and I started you know the podcast was, was examining schisms within culture and how we negotiate those navigate those with our stick charts of mind and spirit and it's it's very tricky to do now and yet in the past it's been something that people had a a pretty intense fluency and flexibility regarding and and maybe there is some psychic defense clues to look into that Um, so before I hit my third point, let me get your response to that, because that really does connect with one of our bigger themes of how to not just walk and chew gum at the same time, but really hold two different worlds in our heads. Talk about plurality of worlds. That, that's really the confidence, is this two diametrically conflicted social systems of value. And yet remain cool with it right i think that the fact that he goes to the moon and everything is its opposite particularly pertaining to social mores is really funny because you know night and day is different you said this is around the time that heliocentrism was being condemned so in that case, you know, you basically you have these two opposites, these two celestial bodies that do two very different things. And so, of course, everybody does things differently there. And, it, it you know, slapstick humor, uh, reversals of humor, that, um, <clears throat> that ability to hold two, two different ideas in your mind at the same time while... Is exclusively the realm of the imagination right you have to be able to imagine and imagination is something that you hold on to loosely if your imagination takes you over too powerfully you become schizophrenic and that's a problem so for most of us who don't who aren't afflicted with that condition we are able to to sort of hold two ideas in our head but there's a different side of schizophrenia and it's an aphantasia, right? It's a complete lack of metaphor. I have a, or, I'm sorry, not metaphor, but imagination. I have a friend who has no imagination. 
he can't imagine things. Um, wow. And I think, I think that in his case, he's actually a pretty witchy, occulty, strange guy. But he, you know, he had me on his podcast that's going to launch next year, uh, alongside some pretty heavyweight thinkers. I was, I was definitely punching above my weight class in that to do thought experiments with me and sort of revel in the fascination of my being able to tell him what direction an apple rolls off of a table. So he's like, so you can see the apple on the table. I said, oh yeah, what color is it? What does it feel like? Can you imagine holding it in your hand? Yes to all of the above. And he's just sitting there like, wow. That's, you know, he knows what an apple is and he knows what a table is and he knows what an apple on a table is, but he can't picture it. And I think that, you know, my, my, oh, and he listens to the show too. So, AJ. Um, but uh, what, what really got me thinking about, you know, sort of his condition is uh, the ways in which people who are not as maybe intelligent as him, I don't know what word I'm looking for exactly, but this idea that there are people who don't have imaginations, right? That's when you start to really see things in terms of the sun and the moon, right? Two separate different things that along with them come two very strict and separate uh, rules systems. But we can't have this sun and moon metaphor without thinking about the fact that they rotate. You know what I mean? Uh, like one yeah. goes up and the other goes down, you know? Then the other one comes up and the other one goes down. And you don't act the same way that you do during the day as you do at night. So, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't put on uh, sunglasses and sunscreen in the middle of the night. And conversely, most of us, unless work expects it, most of us don't sleep through the day. So it makes no sense to bring one set of, one set of tools to something that is constantly rotating. Well... I, I think what you said is, is, is so fascinating in terms of, you know, what a, a complete lack of imagination looks like and what it implies. But I think you could summarize that very simply and say that issue, that one topic alone, you know, one topic, it, it embraces absolutely every aspect of, of Western philosophy since the Greeks. You know, it extends, it ripples out, it just runs like water through many, many channels. You know, it, it's everywhere you turn. That's, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why uh, there's such confusion and misunderstanding around the idea of imagination, is because it is so diverse that we may need a whole bunch of different words and, and, and using that you know, one Gilbert Ryle sort of category for imagination is, is ludicrous, you know? Yeah, just, yeah, it, yeah, different, different imaginations. That's a good way of putting it. People have, and, but it's good to get a grip on the different types of imaginations that there are, right? Well, this is a beautiful segue I could not have scripted this better to the third point that rounds off my my triad of, of, of what applies to voyages to the moon by de Bergerac but is is more generally true of this whole genre of imaginary worlds 
because the third thing, if, if we had satire uh, and then looking at um, allegory in the sense of the place of humans relative to God and the older idea of, say, the great chain of being to what we call the plurality of worlds idea of, of trying to place human humans within the universe. So mm -hmm. that's the second. And the third point is simply the enjoyment of flights of fancy. I think it's interesting mm -hmm. we have that phrase, flights of fancy, and that reappears in actually several languages, that same metaphorical frame of, of flights. Uh, the, the, in, the sheer enjoyment of, of fantasy creation on the one end of the spectrum, or for people of a, a slightly different uh, orientation, uh, more um, logically directed speculation. You know, it's mm -hmm. still speculation, mm -hmm. it's still fantasy, it's still imagination. But I think that's a beautiful spectrum to, that suddenly starts to link people, say like you and me, with, with some more, well, say Richard Dawkins or sort of harder edged people, you know, a little bit more right angled and, uh, you know, not uh, alchemical, you know, um, much mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. DuPont, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, material yeah. kind of, you know, yeah. But yeah. we need that yeah. connection yeah. point. I think we earlier talked about C.P. Snow's very important uh, book, The Two Cultures, uh, published in 1959, dividing you know this big binary between the arts and humanities people, the older sort of values of, of what determined being well-cultured, uh, with the emergence of a scientific class, which at its best uh, really is genius, and at its worst is the kind of scientism that you and I uh, have, you know, such problems with, and I think rightly so. So the link is this, and this bridge, this very strange bridge, would be uh, flights of fancy, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the different directions that they take. It could be an equation, it could be uh, a piece of fiction, um, but it's some in some way, the interior algorithm is is similar, if not the same. It's just you know, coming up with different results because of differences in character. So, right, that's the right. third. And it's point. all, yeah. And it's I like that the thing that links it is the, is the flight of fancy because, again, that like you said, it means different things for different people. I wonder what Richard Dawkins' flights of fancy would look like. That's probably you know, to guys like you and me, it might be kind of boring. But what if it wasn't? What if it was really cool? And I was like, oh wow! And so this is what's going on in your head. You know, I I would love to give that prompt to a really great troupe of interpretive dancers. You know, people who are really mm -hmm. well trained across several different, you know great dance forms from ballet to hip-hop but who could really embrace some improv and do Richard Dawkins flights of fan that kind of emblematic sort of behavior I'd love to see what that looks like physically you know <laughs> just mm -hmm. acted mm -hmm. out on stage just right in front of me I think that would be so cool it would be cool and one thing that I I really enjoy about you choosing this uh this novel 
for our imaginary worlds is I love the way that it does act as a piece of imaginary archaeology by indicating what was what would have been considered common knowledge in terms of manners at that time and but the little things that you can't get from uh you know a mosaic perhaps which is the the sword dangling between the legs like a penis you know right. you're not going to see that uh maybe in a in a bosch painting or something like that but for the most part an archaeological find is going to be uh divided into myth or history and never intersect but when you get to the imaginary world's point of view you get you start to get more than a something that can be put into words you get a feel for what's going on in their heads at that time that's beautifully said i i think that you know i with that last point you know i i almost heard a musical sort of solution to that you get to a point where, where words don't quite you know you need another imaginative mechanism to to capture that that sense but that that conjun you know where that mutant osmosis intersection of myth you know and history uh that is still i think the the rush of that the resonance of that the ripple culturally i think that's what we feel you know when we feel artistically and intellectually inspired is is the 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 echo of that you know don't you isn't that kind of mm -hmm. one way to think of it maybe yeah yeah i think so i think that's really well said i think that the when you when you're attempting to understand the imaginations of people who lived hundreds of years ago i don't has this ever, has this been done before like studies of, of of evolution of imagination i know that people have theories out there that imagination itself has evolved which of course it has because you know we live in a world of cell phones and screens so our imaginations are necessarily going to you know I could I might imagine a character from Star Wars and people aren't going to do that they might imagine Zeus but what does Zeus look like uh, it's it's so be, based on what they write down off of that I think that I think that psychoarchaeology is a is a really interesting subject to follow for for that reason right learning to listen to the 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 music of history and uh, the vibes of the time and try to get some sort of sense about like okay so what have we what have we kept from that what have we thrown away was are there some things we need to get back to etc cetera, etc cetera. it's i mean i think it's where all of the action by definition is and has to be you know psychoarchaeology and i think the the irony is that it's uh the in, it's not looking at the path. It's very. It's kind of the reverse of archaeology in a very strange way. It's you know. It's an inversion. It's it's certainly looking into archaeology, but it's also inverting it and using those same techniques to somehow uh, see what we know of the future, which is the present. You know, that's really all that mm -hmm. we know of the future, which we kind of forget. Uh, mm -hmm. But now there's some really you know. But just the idea of accepting that, I mean, you said that, you know, we have sort of more imagination as in, I, I knew, I know what you mean. 
uh, today because of well, more people, more technology, more uh, conceptualization, more Whoa. living in our heads. But Whoa. it would not have really been a consideration Whoa. to try to visualize that up until fairly mm-hmm. recently. That's not what the visualizations in pre, you know, modern age were about, I don't think. And so there's an enormous amount of stuff that you've touched on there. It comes down to the maps that we, that we draw, you know, um, and the degree to which we are interested in being active in, in drawing our maps, uh, mm-hmm. as in our own personal mm-hmm. individual maps, um, and the degree to which we really don't want to think about that or we want to just get an off-the-shelf government cer- certified product or we're not even thinking in those terms, you know. All of those other categories, those possibilities exist. But the, the people who are actively thinking about maps that they use and that they are also party to, you know, that, that's to me a great awakening moment of possibility. When, and I think you have to keep waking up to that. It, it, it can't be held in mind all the time it's too there's too much responsibility but when when you think of it in more positive terms because every responsibility is an opportunity isn't it really just inverted uh it's really cool because it opens up so many possibilities you know to to actually redraw some maps you know and i i find that really Mm -hmm. um exciting from a visual arts point of view because people who who paint or particularly painting more than photography you can't really revise that much and tinker with it you know it's not that 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 connection with writing doesn't hold you i find that you either paint over (laughs) or you throw you know you just there's no revising it you can't tinker with it once you know you get to that point and I, i think that's something to think about of but maps you really can redraw or you can draw a, it's more thinking of a new map in that sense but you're building stick map. on the old knowledge stick. you know yeah yeah exactly building on the old knowledge and i like this because it it's allowing us to see the cracks in where our own imaginations have gone wrong talking about you know older like they weren't concerned with such measly subjects as Star Wars characters or what have you. They were, you know, there was a sense of some of these imaginary beings as actually being more real and and clear and present than we have them now. So going back to making something like a stick chart as as an externalized new map of my own brain, uh, that kind of impressionistic interpretive redrawing of maps presents pretty interesting opportunities for for where it can go from there well it it's a whole talk about a you know a plurality of worlds i mean i i I think that what you've just said has helped me really um refine in my thinking that the the ultimate goal of of the lost explorers idea 
brand program and and certainly this podcast and and it is a, it, it's a, it's a big huge giant mutant ambitious thing but that's all right as a starting point that's you know dark continents and all that sort of stuff and other universe you know it's good to think like that mm-hmm. the idea would be to create a psychic map of culture today with individual repercussions just as a large you know a, a national scale map has for for all of us where we live on it you know it, it ripples right down that's the integration of it but to then be able to sort of psychoarchaeologically peel back layers and look back at time at other maps and to imagine three-dimensionally how those have shifted and changed and, and evolved as they've come closer to us from that you know, mm-hmm. presumed viewer position. I think that would be, that's the way to think of the goal, you know. And any, you know, it's really, really just humble and piecemeal and, and completely quirky and organic. But every little just piece harvested or reclaimed, you know, does add to, you know, the mosaic picture. I mean, it, it, it will take a while, <laughs> like, you know, several hundred lifetimes to to create a real map but that's not the point the point is the process of that you know to engage with that thinking that that life view yeah all this imaginative all these properties from mad max to the bible you know we've kind of been living in this era of imaginative apocalypse and what we're what we're talking about is moving from that into an age of more imaginative rebuilding, right? The apocalypse has already happened. Maybe not a nuclear war or something like that, but maybe 2012 was the end of that cycle and the Mayans were right. And now people who are still sort of hammering on about um, the faultiness of each other's maps and how that map isn't even real. That town doesn't even exist. They're missing the point because now it's time to it's time to rebuild the maps. And like you said, it won't be done in our lifetimes. But we can just start building our stick charts and and go from there. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that it's really, you know, the the the, the courage of of the conviction, you know, as the old saying goes, if we had that, you know, uh things take the shape they need to and if we lose faith in that then everything goes off the rails and and things it's it really you know another rebuilding exercise is needed you know it's it's that kind of it's that cathedral idea in a way i think a cathedral is a nice uh contrast to stick chart I think they sort of work together if you know what I mean think of the the vision and the social cooperation you know to be engaged in the long haul project of a cathedral I mean we think you know uh, a Hollywood film is a big production or you know maybe a moon landing you know and those okay the latter one really is but a cathedral wow and those sort of 
they also tie in, you know, some of these great mysterious things like the Blythe and Taglios, desert giants and pyramids, and this really mysterious, uh, in, you know, enthusiasm that people of the past have had for seemingly impossible, impossible artistic creations, you know? <laughs> it, it's very hard to explain <laughs> we're getting closer you know we're getting closer and closer to to explaining exactly what we mean and uh i think this was another good good go at it yeah it's sort of you know it's uh the solemnologists say uh you know it's it's a machete moment you know <laughs> where you're hacking away and you think for a moment Oh, God, this is, you know, you know, really, I mean, are, the, the jungle is so big, you know, what's the point? And then you look down at your machete and you think, well, I'm glad I've got this, you know? <laughs> so, machete moments are needed. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's work to be done, but there's means to do it, you know? That's the excitement. Mm -hmm. That's our message. There's means to do the cool work that needs doing to get to interesting places. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, well, I think we might be ready. We might be ready to go to an Oklahoma elementary school classroom <laughs> or theater sort of facility and to enjoy your interpretation of the theme of biological evolution presented by your sixth grade class. Right. Okay. So here are my ideas. Here are my sketches that we can begin to build out into a play. This is ambitious, but you know, you don't want to take any half measures with something as serious as the theory of evolution. You know, I mean, this is a this is a big deal, and it'll be a lot of fun, too. So I believe we start by addressing the diversity question right away. What was Charles Darwin the most obsessed with? Uh, naked Argentinian men on horseback when he was younger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking Beatles. So oh, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, beetles and worms. Yeah. Beetles and worms. And there are countless, 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 countless numbers of beetles. So we would be doing a little number about how many beautiful different types of beetles there are in the world. And we get a very nice multi-ethnic cast to dress up in, in beetles. And we'll have one child sing a very simple song about how he, he loves all the beetles equally. Or she, Which is how a, she loves. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay. And then we'll tell, we'll tell a little bit about the Voyage of the Beagle. Of course, it will be captained by an actual beagle, a kid in a beagle outfit. Uh, we'll have some paper mache tortoises, some paper palm trees, and then we will have a fun uh, sort of Oscar the Grouch Darwin versus, you know, kind of the, the, the more... Uh, fanciful and fun big bird 
of Wallace. Oh. And they will culminate, culminate, <laughs> culminate in a song that uh, the line that I have for it so far is that Wallace wants to know what it's all about. Darwin wants to know what it's not about. And then oh, that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll be ending with, uh, you know, the classic fish coming out of the ocean. Kind of technically difficult. This might be more than sixth graders can do. But we'd have a kid in a fish costume come out of a kiddie pool, step behind a curtain upon which is painted, you know, the link between that and amphibians and so on down the chain until we get to people. And for the narrator of the whole thing, I thought we would have good old Australopithecus, Lucy, the missing link, act as our our godlike narrator over the oh, whole thing. I was that was perfectly timed the introduction. I was just hanging out to know who the narrator was. Look, I think that's another just exceptional achievement in real time with, you know, other things and conversations going on. Uh, I love that. I could really, really picture that. I could see that being a lovely story within a movie, you know, sort of situation. Um, and then you, you get to see sort of cell phone videos of, of the kids performing. Everything about that was, uh, I think, really measured and, and balanced. And uh, it's kind of an interesting prism to look at the debates about, uh, you know, what schools are up to with, other, you know, with people's kids today and how much parents should be involved and political correct. You know, it's just such a, a, a frenzy of, of ideological turmoil almost more than any other part of society today, in one view, I think. And you really navigated that well. I thought that was really uh, a nice, delicate, but uh, not wimpy, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, there won't deafness. Be any, there won't be any, yeah, there won't be any, uh, any songs about how, uh, you know, Darwin represents uh, whiteness and toxic masculinity. We're not going down that road. Right? Yeah, just, or, or atheism, are, or radical atheism in Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, right. that could be, right, you know. Right. There's, there are any, no, there, the whole thing was a minefield that I designed. And you, you, you walked through it. You, you did a nice tightrope navigate, weave through it. But uh, you, you were not uh, overly cautious and stilted, you know. You moved with authority <laughs> through the whole minefield. And, and that's, that's psychic defense. That's what we're talking about. We, you know, we want to do that ourselves. We want to get listeners and readers to feel confident about navigating these, these minefields of today because they can be done, it can be done. And, and the way to do that is to do it authoritatively, you know, decisively. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I did it also with... Uh, Gus uh, managed to, to thwart my attempt to have him take a long nap today, so half the time I've had a, a, a tired young man on my arm, too. <laughs> this is one of those classic free-for-challenges. free, for, free for challenges. Wow. Talk to Chris, imaginative challenge, and also uh, make sure that the boy doesn't, doesn't cry. <laughs> well, that is impressive on multiple levels. I, I think that's really cool, and I think they all kind of reinforce each other you know, symbiotically in some way. Um, in addition to you know, it's an oscillation, a challenge, but also some 
something good has come of it. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I, I just to close off the moon, I was thinking about uh, how it rhymes with so many words and how it's become, you know, it's been so popular in poetry and song. And then I thought of Fly Me to the Moon, which is just one mm. of thousands mm-hmm. of moon-related songs. And uh, it brought to mind a guy that I just feel has to be mentioned. Maybe some people with the legendary stardust cowboy, Carl mm. Odom, who I think is one of the more fringe outsider musicians to ever hit the, some sort of big time. Uh, David Bowie uh, recorded something with him. I got a fan letter from him uh, for Zane's. Yes, I have it. It's a handwritten one. Um, He was just completely nuts. His song, Paralyzed. If you haven't heard it, you should. It's a breakthrough. I mean, Frank Zappa and Beefheart and many others, there's, you know, and Punk. Uh, there's a lot of out out there people, but Paralyzed was quite remark. It sold sixty eight thousand copies in a matter in like an hour because it was just so out there. And T Bone Burnett is on the drums, recorded in a very rough Dallas studio, and so the legendary Stardust Cowboy became a kind of he was a little bit like Tiny Tim on Laughing. He did a couple of gigs on the Laughing television. So he got some notoriety. But years later, I saw him at uh, what they call kind of a bloodhouse pub of the time. Like a good place to go to either get into a brawl or to score some heroin. It was called the Prince of Wales in uh, the bottom end of Fitzroy Street in St. Kilda, which is sort of like. Melbourne's uh, equivalent of Coney Island, but with there used to be big, beautiful mansions, and they all went to to pot. And um, he was playing at this, and I went along to see him, and he was introduced by an outrageously weird Australian band called Shower Scene from Psycho, and it was one of the most out there musical moments I have ever ever been involved with I just can't imagine anything stranger than their like really long set like two hours just but it managed to maintain some bizarre otherworldly kind of coherence and at the very very end after this stream of consciousness bizarro music uh, psychobilly trance thing ritual that they'd been doing he sang really straight fly me to the moon playing a ukulele and in this you know everybody's covered in tattoos and they've got Melbourneians don't carry guns so much more knives but the whole place is just this you know festering uh, soar of social misbehavior and the whole place went quiet dead silent dead si- you could hear the bubbles in the beer when the legendary Stardust Cowboy did 
uh, fly me to the moon at the end. So that was just a moon story. That also made me think of that in my childhood, I remember going up once on the roof in my pajamas, you know, cheering on the astronauts, that magical kid connection, you know? Mm-hmm. So the flight's a fancy idea. It runs deep in, in uh, human consciousness. Uh, are we ready for the tool of the week? Yeah, hit us. Okay. Uh, I, I've got a really big one coming up next time, which really needs some unpacking because it connects to some interesting people, including the musician Harold Budd. Uh, but for today, this sounds much simpler, but I really, really recommend it. Openly explicitly, intentionally, consciously, willfully, and joyously try imitating an animal. And do one that isn't in your normal ever maybe repertoire, going back to childhood, okay? Steer clear from maybe domestic animals, you know, or obvious choices. Push the envelope a little bit as a kind of, you know, performer as a ventriloquist in training you know try to imitate i'm gonna do an anteater well see that's that's the kind of thinking we're talking about that's the kind of thinking we're talking about because and this is the kicker a decisive moment in human history we talked about you know the connection between myth and history well a decisive moment in what we mean by history which implicitly says human history, really, but we'll specify it further, it's a human history, was when we started paying more attention to ourselves than to other animals and creatures. I think, I think that's really true. I think that's, it sounds so simple, but... I think that's dead on, yeah. Don't, don't, you know, I, I mean, it, it really... It, I think it's so fundamentally right, you know? Uh, And it just, something that was completely, well, if instinctive as an idea means anything at all, there was an enormous amount of time across a huge range of, of different peoples that where it was instinctive to imitate animals. You know, just instinctive. That's where everything came from. I mean, who else was there to teach us? You know? Right, right. Yes. No, I couldn't agree with that more. That's real that's a really, really cool idea. Hang on one second, buddy. I got you. So that relates uh, in in a, in the way I think it should down to the level of my practical tip. And this is more and more possible all the time. It 20 years ago, it would have been much, much more expensive. I, I understand that. But technology does make things cheaper. So I recommend that people investigate purchasing what version they can afford. Because it's like anything. There's, there's a huge price range. And, but a parabolic ear listening device. Okay. They do get, they, yeah. th- there are some very affordable ones. You, of course you get what you pay for, but it's like, you know, uh, field tape recorders. You know, it's the same. It's like anything electronic, you know, or anything, anything. Um, but it is, 
the other day we had another thunderstorm and I went out in the rough terrain behind my house and it, the, it, the wind had gone completely still and I had my radio shack parabolic here, very humble, very crystal radio. And it was fabulous to hear more fully the music of the grasshoppers after the rain. I mean, it met all of my criteria for what I mean by music. And then it did one other thing. This is how things, when they work, they really work. Because that experience of listening to the grasshoppers after the thunderstorm here in Boulder City, Southern Nevada, brought fully back to mind something that had not been as clear as I would like and very, very vague even in the language recollection. I needed the more sensory memory. But I heard again the sound of silkworms feeding and spinning, you know, in Indonesian mulberry trees. That's what silkworms like. They like mulberry trees. And I, I, I got that experience once in life. And it was just so intense. It was like listening to your own central nervous system when you're in a sensory deprivation tank. That's the only thing that I can compare it to. But to hear silkworms doing their thing, I mean, that was wild. That's, that'd be like, you know, you, there's some things you don't, you don't want to hear what a spider sounds like, you know? Not really, you, no. you don't. But there are some things that are cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The silkworm aspect is really interesting. I got to go on YouTube and see if I can find a recording. I'm sure that I'm sure it's out there, but to hear it in real time has got to be crazy. It's very hard to record, I think. You know, I think it would be possible now with today's super, uh, you know, amplifying shotgun mics or, or omnidirectional ones that they've got some amazing things that they can do. But it really is, it, it, it almost... Uh, you know, we're saying about the different, you know, the connection between literal maps and then our own psychic maps. It's almost that immediate. It's one to one between the sound and the psychology of it. You know, the psychological. There's no time lag of processing it. You know, you're not. It's not like listening to a piece in D minor and then it gets to your brain and you think, okay, well that triggers this sort of mood and that's what I'm going to respond to that with. You know, it's it's even it's a hundred times, a thousand times faster and more direct than that. And I think those experiences are really strange. And that's what my tool next time is about, is about dealing with that. The the question of being and it's good, we can call it the silkworm problem uh, of being able to record it, say, in today's super state of the art tech terms but still struggling with the psychological impact of the experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Having those two, the recording and the experience, having that conflict. And that is a basic conflict, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, are, are we having fun at the party or are we you know, taking pictures that will make us think later that we had fun? You know, that recording versus yeah. being in the moment thing 
is a really heavy aspect of, of the modern mindset. <coughs> Think about you know the or even even having a thought and immediately going to oh I, I wonder how I would tweet that. You know, it's even invite it's even invaded the psychic space in that respect. Totally, it has totally. And, and there is absolutely a, an entire demographic that is 100% committed to that. That is their map, so to speak. They, they unquestioningly uh, reach for that reality. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't. Which is, it, not to loop us all the way back to uh, before we went into tools and tips and imaginative challenges, but... That really is why going back and starting a new map is such an appealing appealing idea. I think this is one of those ones that people are either going to get or they're not. Because we are talking about music here, in a sense. And not in a, not in a technical way, but in a kind of a feeling way. Yeah, and the fact that that's inescapably part of it. It's not something we're applying to it. You know, it's not a characteristic of it. You know, all of those, those prepositional metaphorical distancing things don't apply. You know, it's, that, it's in that rare category or genre of, of things that just, it's a one-to-one -one you know, relationship between the experience of it and the it. You know, right? That so moment. the Matang is a. It's somebody would say, you know. So the Matang is a metaphor for your mind, and I would say no. No, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> well, this might be our deepest, you know, one of the, you know, the really deep points of, of of just a total interrogation of of everything that we mean by metaphor. You know, certainly. I mean, it's we can't dismiss its magic, but it certainly needs to be desperately examined you know because the the possibility of a one-to-one -one, uh ratio relationship connection osmosis backwards and forwards is essential you know the mind mm -hmm. and and you can't even and this is where you know you you need things like music or uh some visual art form maybe one that we haven't imagined yet because the la language doesn't do it, because you get, you know, the mind asthma tang, you know, and you've already, you know, you're starting to dilute it. You're you're corporatizing a, some sort of fundamental magic, you know, and it's just, yeah. it's not going to stay stable, you know. It's going to go no. You see that it, when the when the West and even the East attempt to dig down into animist societies magically oriented societies they get frustrated because they attempt to get the tribes people to say oh so this is like this like when you put on the the jaguar mask yeah you're 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 becoming like a jet no, no 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 not like a jaguar i am a jaguar at that point and it's a tough idea to get your head around well I would say that there's no you you don't because it, the moment that the the response is I I am a jaguar what you're really saying is you've missed the entire point that 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 even declaring that that having to make an identity statement misses the entire point of the ritual the magic the worldview you know and and the person who doesn't get that 
is not going to get the I am. It's still, you know, the t one of the two key verb forms, you know, either to be or to have, you know. And mm -hmm. the be statement is, 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 even, is even more problematic because the have is, is, a, is a corollary of it. You can't have, you know, it, it, right. it works to be first and then to have. But it, once you're in that frame, well, you're not getting out of that frame very easily. You're going to have to have a real commitment to the agency responsibility, but also the immense joyful opportunity of being able to draw a new map. You know, uh, right. if that doesn't get you excited, if you want to go back under the covers, you know, well, you're, you're going to stay there. You know, you've got to be really uh, just so jazzed by the possibility that you, you actually can draw a new map for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, wow, that's a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This leads us pretty well into dream, I think. Yes, it you have does. A dream for us and this week. This this has an interesting. Uh, I, 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 there's the underlying theme for me is uh, there have been a couple of moments of insight, and I draw an enormous amount of inspiration from from our conversations, both you know on mic and, and just casually. Uh, but lately, there have been some moments where I have had the privilege of getting a real glimpse backstage of my thinking, you know? That secret world of the theatrical apparatus, or however you imagine it. You know, your deep associative uh, trains and machines of thought that, that are carrying all sorts of very hermetic uh, hermetically meaningful associative patterns upon which you build up layer and layer and layer of, of sense-making, you know, that's how I think of it. And I've had, so these, these epiphanies have been very peripheral and seemingly uh, insignificant in the telling, and yet to me they're like decoding, you know, some of my inner mysteries in a, in a good way. Um, but the dream, started very uh, basically with the conflict between uh, fascination and pure disgust. So I yeah. was at a crossroads of viscerality for a dream that I, this was no surface sort of color mescaline visual thing. And it wasn't even total immersion, it was visceral. It was focused on a simply enormous and that was part of its potentially repulsive nature. An enormous cauliflower cream baked pie. And I need to tell you, it, it was there with a level of detail that was just frankly disturbing. Disturbing and upsetting. Yes, it was. It was. And yet I, I had to know what was inside. And yeah. so I plunged this fork in with, a, and I had this sense even within the dream that the power of this enormous cauliflower cream baked pie, whatever the hell that would be, the power of it had osmosed, oscillated into me 
with it with a kind of ferocity because that's how I dug that fork into the pie. And I started peeling it open and it was just a sensory experience that was beyond the, any ER trauma unit. It was just, it was so just completely overwhelming. And what I found inside were all of these heads, amputated heads of action figures and dolls. And, you know, like cutting off dolls heads is sort of the, the sign of a creepy kid, you know, in, in, that's a trope in a lot of, you know, silly horror films. But there were all these heads. So I started pulling them out of the pot and wiping them off because I was curious, right? And uh, I, I, realized I didn't recognize any of the heads. None of them. And I thought, oh, wow. And finally, I got to this one that did had a familiar sort of shape, even covered in goo. And when I wiped it off, it was, it was familiar. And it reassured me. It was the one head I recognized. It was Scooby-Doo. And in that moment in the dream, I had one of these epiphanies about my associative patterns. Because I realized, I remembered, I was back. I was back on the couch with my grandmother still alive. The pre-stroke, everything's you know, good. And I was watching Scooby-Doo, and I'd seen many episodes before, but I was young, you know. And it suddenly hit me that the, the convention of every episode, the basis of the plot, was always that there aren't real ghosts and monsters. It's always some humans, you know, pretending to be monsters or, or ghouls or something, to scare off some other people for some nefarious reason. And that it was the same, same algorithm every time. I didn't use the word algorithm, you know, as a child then or in my memory. But that was the point. It was the Scooby-Doo moment. And I woke up. Sure.